For all our great listeners that love this podcast, you will also love our supporter and former guest, Debbie Montgomery Johnson's podcast aired every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time titled Stand Up and Speak Up. Debbie is known as the woman behind the smile, renowned author, speaker, and victim advocate. The show offers a fun and informative time. Listen to people who have been through extraordinary struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and to speak up about their experiences and the lessons learned. For more information, please go to Debbie's website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com, to obtain the Zoom link for the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. We are so happy to have as our guest today, David Page, two-time Emmy winner, the creator of the television show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives that changed the world of food television. And now he's an author. David is a longtime journalist, network news producer with two decades of foreign and domestic service with ABC and NBC News, who transitioned to food television and then books. David has gone around all over the United States, capturing the stories behind the people and places in the foods we consume and compiled all that into a book titled Food Americana. Welcome, David, to the podcast. Hey, Ron, thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to have you, really. We're, we're so glad to have you. Hey, let's backtrack, David, for a little while. Please tell us about your career at the networks, ABC, NBC, and some interesting investigative and foreign reporting topics you covered. Okay. I uh, had always wanted to be in broadcasting. I, I picked my high school. Um, I went as a day student to a, a prep school because it had a student-run radio station. And I was of the age where I was inspired by Woodward and Bernstein, blah, 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 blah. So I started chasing jobs all across the country as, as soon as I was of college age and uh, actually never finished college because uh, I, I went to school to um, study, uh, drink, chase women and be on the radio. And it turned out I only had time for three of the four. <laughs> so I, I followed radio jobs from uh, Oklahoma City to Wichita to, uh, and in Wichita, I got into TV uh, as an investigative reporter, followed jobs to uh, Atlanta and Houston, and then got picked up as a producer by NBC. They moved me to Chicago. I worked there a couple of years, and then they asked me to go to Europe. So I went to London and then moved to Frankfurt and then to Budapest, uh, initially covering Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And, and I, I went to Budapest because we knew that the fall of communism was imminent. 
and it was the, the Hungary was the, the most western of the East Bloc countries. You you could drive to Vienna and buy toilet paper. So we mm. we opened a bureau in Budapest, and then I covered all of the communist revolutions. I walked through the wall the night it opened. Had me a fine time, uh, literally covering some of the the biggest stories on the face of the earth. Moved back to the States, became a show producer, first at NBC uh, with, with a partner. I created the weekend editions of the Today Show. Then I went to ABC, where um, first I was an investigative producer. Then I was the senior investigative producer for 2020. Then I was a senior producer slash line producer of Good Morning America, which means once every three weeks, subject to the executive producer, the show was mine which was terrific, except uh, basically I got 12 hours of sleep in that week. Um, I moved on from there, uh, ended up opening my own production company, and eventually, after starving for a while, uh, managed to sell diners, drive-ins, and dives. And and that's my life in a nutshell, so thanks for stopping by and I'm out of here. (laughs) So being based in places such as London, Frankfurt, Budapest, and traveling Europe, Africa, in the Middle East, uh, you developed a passion for some of the world's most incredible foods. Now share with us some of the most memorable food experiences while you were on assignment. Well, sure. The, the thing about food and cultures is that, look, I had never expected to be sent overseas. I was as xenophobic as any American. They called me up one day, they said, you want to move to London? I said, huh? Um, I got over there and realized, Uh, I was being sent to country after country I really knew nothing about. And I I pretty quickly figured out that food was a gateway to cultures, that it told you a tremendous amount about the history, mindset, even geography of different countries, and that sharing foods with folks in their own countries was a way to establish communication, to learn more about the place. Memorable meals, sure. The first time I ever had couscous, I was in a tent waiting to interview Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, as it turns out, uh, serving the journalists there, couscous was a way of killing time because old Mo wasn't going to show that night. Uh-huh. Uh, although I, I did interview him later in the wreckage of his bombed out house after the United States military blew it up. That was a fascinating experience. Um, Had a remarkable meal in Luxembourg. We we had gone there. Every year there's a NATO summit. All the NATO countries get together in some place. And it is the most boring story you can ever be assigned to cover. What's worse than covering it is being sent to do the preview story. You know, uh, going to be a summit. So when I got asked to do the preview story, I said to my correspondent, Mike Betcher, I said, let's try to do this better. What's the smallest army in NATO? It turns out the smallest army in NATO at the time, I guess it's probably still true, was Luxembourg. They, they had a military of 600 people, so small, they didn't have a general. It was commanded by a colonel. Uh, The minister of defense, as it turns out, was also the agriculture minister. So that when we went to do our preview story, focusing on the military in Luxembourg, among other things, we joined him on uh, the dairy float 
during some annual parade as he threw those little containers of milk to the crowd. Now, it, it, it was far more interesting than I'm making it sound because this was at a time in, in the 80s when Germany was really regaining its, its full position as, as a powerful member of the Western alliance. And what I found in Luxembourg was the story of people saying to me, yeah, okay, we're all in NATO together, but I remember World War II, and I'm not so quick to trust Germany. Um, there was a massive military, U.S. military cemetery uh, in Luxembourg where George Patton was buried. He died in Luxembourg in a, in a car crash. Wow, after, I didn't know that. Yeah, after having survived the war. Um, but in Luxembourg, after a long day of dirty shooting, I don't know why we were covered with grime, we're driving back to Luxembourg City to, to our hotel, and we pass a sign for a restaurant. And we figure, what the hell, we're hungry, so we drive up there. We walk in, and we are vastly underdressed. This is clearly an oat cuisine restaurant. And then the owner comes out to greet us, and he's an expat from Tucson. And he is so delighted to see a group of lost, filthy Americans. <laughs> we become his honored guests. He breaks out the champagne from his private reserve. Um, it was just a terrific meal. Um, other meals of note, uh, we were covering violence in the West Bank, and I was in, um, I think it was Ramallah, with an Israeli crew, Ramallah on the West Bank, had an Israeli crew with me, and I, we were interviewing people uh, in the streets, and, and I came across a family, and they insisted in the Quranic tradition that we come inside and have tea with them. So my Israeli crew went into this Palestinian house with me where I should point out it was Ramadan. They could not eat until sunset. And yet they insisted on bringing out food for us to eat. Huh. That, that one has always stuck with me as an example of what's possible. Yeah, that's very so interesting. What prompted you to leave the world of network TV and start your own production company? I had gotten, how do I phrase this? I don't want to fall into the mainstream media is corrupt basket here. It's not. Um, it may be imperfect. It, it, it certainly makes mistakes. But I, it was a time in network news when things were starting the stories that I would have picked at the top of the newscast were suddenly less interesting to the grown-ups than things that were more likely to bring in eyeballs. Not things that were not true. Not, none of that. It was it was programming decisions, and I was in. I was running. I was line producing GMA one week and. My executive producer told me they're going to air um, an episode of The Millionaire tonight that has a million dollar winner. Um, that winner is booked in your first half hour tomorrow. That said to me, everything I care about has changed. You want to book the millionaire winner? Fine. Put them in the third half hour or the fourth. Hour. Don't put them in the half hour that's news. And that's when I decided that it was time for me to move on to something else. Um, Interestingly enough, I, I made an idiotic decision. I was recruited to become the senior vice president of a home shopping channel in Minneapolis. And I thought it was really neat 
to be a big shot at a publicly traded corporation. So I took that job. Uh, I lasted there about 12 and a half seconds because I, I really didn't want to sell gold jewelry to shut-ins who couldn't afford it. And we were in Minneapolis and my daughter was going to school there. So that's where I opened a production company. So what was the genesis of the show, uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives? Um, poverty, my poverty. I uh, was not doing well with my production company uh, in that no one was buying anything from me. So I, I called a friend of mine who had a production company of his own that was doing well, Al Roker. He had worked for me on the weekend today show before he went over to the main show. And I said, Al, I'm starving. You got anything? He said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the food network. Why don't you do some of it through my company? So I did, and that was terrific, and it, it got me into food television. Al and I both knew that for me to make any real money, I, I couldn't be splitting the income as a subcontractor of his. So I moved on to pitching uh, the Food Network myself, and that wasn't going well. Uh, I was talking to a, a, an executive there who was kind enough to take my calls but kept saying no. One day I'm on the phone with her. It's late on like a Thursday maybe a Friday. Anyway, I'm pitching, pitching and pitching. And finally, she says to me, I had done a history of diners for Al. She finally says to me, do you have anything else about diners? I think she took pity on me. And I said, oh yeah, uh, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. And I told her, let me take a moment from the podcast to tell you about a great novel written by one of our sponsors and supporters, author Paul Rushworth Brown from Sydney, Australia. Paul became a writer in 2015 when he embarked on a six-month project to produce a written family history for his children. Through his research, he developed a passion for writing, and Red Winter Journey is the sequel to his first novel, Skullduggery, a written portrait of the way his ancestors lived. Red Winter Journey has been nominated for the 2022 New South Wales Premier's Literature Award and is also up for the 2022 Best Indie Book Award in the United Kingdom. Come along on this historical, fictional, adventurous, and mysterious journey that twists, turns, and surprises until the very end. If you like history, adventure, and intrigue with a dash of spirited love, then you will be engrossed in this tale of a peasant family getting caught up in the ravages of the English Civil War in 1642. A young man, Tommy Rushworth, tries to stay alive after being absconded into the parliamentary army and taken off to war. Thomas Rushworth Sr. is racing against time to save his son from imminent death in a war he wanted no part of. I read this novel, and believe me when I tell you it keeps the reader on edge, surprising the reader with twists, turns, and mystery, all the while painting a vivid picture that places you in the time and in the place of all the action. Once I started reading this novel, I found it difficult to put it down. The comical crudeness of the writing mirrors times when peasants were a lowly, uneducated, rough lot, but this only adds to this realistic and vibrant tale. Reading this novel, one can immerse themselves with this factually accurate tale and discover the more colorful, candid details of what it may have been to live in this rebellious time. This historical fiction novel was told the way it should be. Paul's research was spectacular and really places the reader into the time of the English Civil War, a time many are not aware of and will find it so interesting to read about. The author brings the realism of history to one's imagination with little effort. Besides making a great read, this book would also make a great gift. 
Paul is becoming one of Australia's established new authors. The book, Red Winter Journey, is available in paperback and Kindle format through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other fine retailers. All the information regarding the book, Red Winter Journey, and Skullduggery will be listed in the podcast notes. We're all about it. She said, you know, that sounds really good. Uh, get me a write-up on Monday. We have a development meeting on Tuesday. I hung up. And on the one hand, I was delighted because it's the first thing she expressed interest in. On the other hand, I had just pulled that name out of thin air. I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Everything I had told her was BS. So you just and came I, out of your mouth? Uh, or some other body part. But yeah, I just, <laughs> just, it just popped out. And uh, I spent the weekend calling around the country back when people used phones to talk to people on and dug up enough to to put together a, a one-hour show proposal because um, she had asked for a one-hour special. And I, I sent it to her on Monday, and uh, they met on Tuesday. And shortly thereafter, they commissioned a one-hour special uh, called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Now, what's interesting about that is they were not looking at that uh, as a series. W what they had was Guy Fieri, had won their um, Food Network Star Contest. This was early in the life. It was the second year they did it. And they still thought that that contest would create future stars for them. In fact, Guy is the only one who ever came out of it as, as a star. But um, they were all excited about getting him on the air in prime time. Uh, they figured my special would help keep him in front of the public while they figured out which big deal production company uh, to do a, a primetime series with. They, they had a couple of them uh, propose shows and it turned out they didn't like anything that had been proposed. So kind of cause they had no choice. They bought a short first season of diners, not expecting it to work. Uh, in fact, when we first got on the air and the first couple of weeks went well, one of the executives warned me, he said, you know, okay, th this is all terrific and you may get a couple of seasons out of it, but we don't think it has legs. There are just not enough restaurants for this to be a long-term viable show. Um, I did the first 11 seasons. They're now in season 40 something. So I, I guess it turned out viable. That's for sure. Yeah. Can you explain to us um, what you call the Americanization of food. Yeah. Um, after my interest in food was really stoked in Europe and then through diners, I took a close look at what Americans eat. I, I came up with a question, which is, is there an American cuisine? And that, that was the genesis of the book Food Americana. And after a couple of years of research, I came to the conclusion that A, there is an American cuisine. B, just as America is a melting pot for an amalgam of countries and cultures, we built a cuisine out of the foods of other countries and cultures that we adopted generally when immigrants brought those foods here. But, but then we, we changed them. We evolved them. They made, we made them based on our tastes and on available product into an Americanized version of something. You know, that gets to the whole 
authenticity debate. You'll go to a Chinese American restaurant and some schnorrer in the crowd will complain that he's been to China and this isn't Chinese food. Well, no, it's not Chinese food. It's Chinese American food, right. which is a cuisine of its own. Just as heaping bowls of pasta covered in sauce that's full of meat is nothing you'll ever get in Italy. It is Italian-American cuisine. And we've done that to, to a variety of cuisines. Um, in my view, uh, to be part of American cuisine, it has to be a food way that is on everyone's tip of the tongue every day is something that maybe I'll have today, which is why Chinese and sushi and pizza and bagels qualify when, in my view, Thai food and Bolivian food, for example, do not. They're available in much of America. Um, there have been concerted movements to, to make them part of our overall cuisine or Vietnamese food, for that matter. But they haven't caught on in an everyday, everywhere way. Why do you think Americans love fast food? Well, a number of reasons. A, fast food came to be as our way of life became fast. Um, fast food, real, I, I mean, it started in the 20s with White Castle. We can certainly back up and discuss that if you'd like. But the, the expansion of fast food across America was post-World War II when Americans feel, uh, white Americans were feeling um, flush with money and opportunity. The situation certainly did not apply to minorities. But when the majority of America felt as if it had an extra buck in its pocket, and thanks to uh, VA housing uh, mortgages, people began to move to the suburbs and cars became um, almost a requirement and people started driving to and from work and people started taking vacations via car across the country. The concept of pulling into a place, getting a bag of food and moving on became the American thing. Now, there are far more complex um, chemical reasons why we eat so much fast food. Um, we, we've gotten kind of addicted to sugar, fat and salt by the industrial food complex. And certainly fast food delivers that. And by the way, understand something. Um, a Big Mac tastes good. A, an In-N-Out burger tastes a hell of a lot better and is probably better for you. But the gotta say, that, I, that's one thing I never had. I, I'm looking for an In-N-Out. Well, see, I In-N-Out haven't. burger, first of all, it's made from fresh beef. Now, I, I in my book, point out that by the time you've got everything under condiments, you're not going to taste the difference between fresh beef and frozen, but it makes it cool. And like Coors beer used to be, you can't get it in the East, which makes it more attractive, but it's a damn fine, messy drive through burger. And when you get it animal style, which is with um, lettuce and quote special sauce, which falls out all over you while you eat it on the hood of your car. It's a, <laughs> it's a delightful thing. Why do you think unhealthy foods still dominate the American diet? We, we like to eat quickly. 
were addicted to um, fat and salt. And we have an abundance. It's not just that it's healthy or unhealthy. It's, it's portion size as much as anything else. I mean, one of the reasons that Italian-American food is, is known for its abundance is that Italian-American cooking was created by immigrants who were dirt poor, who came to the U.S. and found out that even if you're poor, you can afford to buy meat here. And all of a sudden, an abundance, abundanza, an ab- meat on the table became a sign of living the good life. I mean, in, in a much narrower way, I remember one of my grandfathers who, when we went, he was, a, they had escaped the Holocaust. Um, when we went out to dinner, he insisted in a restaurant that there be a full basket of bread on the table. He might not touch it, but he wanted to know it was there. And, you know, America's always been about, for immigrants, a, a future opportunity, a better future, more, more, more. And we've, I mean, look at the size of, of plates at the Cheesecake Factory, the amount of food we eat is insane. Yeah, yeah. Is the plant-based food movement growing, in your opinion? hmm And um, faster and more significantly than I would have told you a year ago. Um, and I'm not sure why, uh, a it's hip. Um, there's an awful lot of people, for example, claiming that they, uh, they have celiac who don't, but, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is here to stay. Is it, um, saving the earth from industrial farming? I don't know. Uh, is it better for the world since no one can tell you yet? what the carbon impact of these highly processed vegetable products is. I don't know. Um, Is it significant enough to, um, to have an impact on the food industry in general? Yes, it is. Okay. Good answer. What impact David, do you see COVID having on what and how we eat? Well, COVID has um, vastly increased the expectation that food be takeawayable to to make up a word. Many places that used to offer a drive-in lane have now changed their architectural models to have two drive-in lanes. Many restaurants that would never have thought of making food available to go now do so. Uh, there's been an increase in ghost kitchens, which is restaurants in name only that have no physical plant that people can come and sit in, which is not good for people who want to work in the food industry. Although while those picked up significantly during the height of the pandemic, they're they're not doing as well as people would have expected. But the bottom line is um, menus have gotten smaller. uh, Restaurants are operating leaner. Fewer employees are making money in the restaurant business and much more food is going home. So let's talk about your book, Food America. Oh, sorry. No, it's a, my, my daughter just got her master's from Columbia. I'll be paying that off forever. So let's sell some books. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the book, Food Americana, your book, which, by the way, is a great read for anybody that loves food and, and who doesn't. Thank you. Well, what was the impetus for you to start writing the book? Was there a certain dish or food that sparked your interest in the history of American cuisine and how long did it take you to write the book? 
A number of questions there. The impetus was every few years I change careers. Now, uh, that can be within television. I mean, I've been everything in television. Uh, I've been a morning show producer. I've been an investigative guy. I've been a foreign guy. You, you just, I, I kind of get itchy to, to try something new. Sure. And secondarily, every TV producer on earth thinks he has a book in him because nobody understands how hard it is, except those who do it to write for television. It's not, you can't just sit down and tell a story. You can't just, it was a dark and stormy night and Oedipus killed his father. You can't do that. You have to look at all the video and audio that you have and structure your words to use those and to invisibly push viewers from one section of that to another. It's a highly complex way to write. And it seems to most TV producers that just sitting down and putting the words down on paper would be a lot easier. And so I finally looked up one day and said, you know, it's time. I'll give it a try. Um, was there one dish that sparked my interest? Not particularly. Yeah. Uh, it was more the bigger question that had come to me over time. Is there an American cuisine? How long did it take you to write the book? I figured about a year. And then I realized partway into it that I was an idiot because what I had done, each chapter in the book is a different food or foodway. And shortly into researching the book, I realized that I had to do as much research for each chapter as I might as well do for a whole book on that yeah. So it turned out it took two years. As Red Smith, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times sports writer, once said, writing's easy. Just cut open a vein and bleed a while. <laughs> so the book covers, for our audience, I read the book, it's a great book, the categories of the pizza pie, Mexican and Chinese cuisine, barbecue, fried chicken, sushi, bagels, wings, and burgers. Now the book... Yes. Uh, delves into the backstories, the history and the subculture of the foods and the places serving them. Uh, it's, a, again, a fascinating read. Now, we don't have time to cover all the categories. So let me ask you about a couple of them. Uh, how did the bagel become an American dish and the same for sushi? Well, in the case of the bagel, you, you can thank or blame the Linder brothers. Um, we all know Lenders frozen bagels. Oh yeah. Pardon me, pardon me while I clear my throat. <clears throat> I get choked up talking about bagels. Um, I, I had the opportunity to interview Marvin Lender, one of the three Lender brothers. He's still alive in his eighties, a great guy, uh, and a philanthropist. And, and he and his brothers had taken over their father's bakery in New Haven, Connecticut, one of the first outside of a major metropolitan area to make bagels. And they were forward-looking guys, and they were looking to expand their business. And they, they married two new technologies. One, um, freezing food had become viable on an industrial level. And two, uh, there was a guy out in California who had invented the automatic bagel-making machine, but he couldn't sell it. Nobody, nobody was interested. 
It took him two years. He was uh, pitching it left and right. And then the lenders heard about it and took a look at it. And they decided uh, they couldn't buy it. He was, he was leasing them. So they, they leased the machine, which allowed them to produce an immense number of bagels, freeze them and distribute them all across the country. Now, in the process, for whatever reason, be it the bagel making machine, the sons of the guy who invented it say it could handle any dough and that it, the machines others made to prepare the dough to put into it were the culprit. But the, the bottom line was the, the dough that bagels were now made out of automatically um, was thinner and it produced a lighter, less chewy bagel. Um, there were now additives being, uh, preservatives being added to the dough. And as, uh, as Marvin Lender told me, you know, you couldn't sell a New York Jewish bagel in, in the middle of the country where people were used to white bread and, and, and dinner rolls. So the texture was actually a selling point. They started adding other flavors that had never been seen on the Lower East Side, like raisin and, and cinnamon. And that's what made the bagel um, attractive to America. Again, as we became increasingly a grab-and-go society, you can eat a bagel with one hand while you're driving your car. It, it has gotten to the point where these bagels that um, bear little relationship to their New York originals are so ubiquitous that, that the number one seller of bagels in America is now Dunkin' Donuts. However, there has been over the last few years a, a growing artisanal bagel movement, and, and you now see an increase in the number of places in various cities and even towns where bagel shops are actually making bagels from scratch, the original New York way, boiling them before baking. There's, there's a place in Denver, Rosenberg's Deli, that actually treats their water to mimic the mineral content of water in New York City because of the old belief that it's the New York water that makes the bagel special. I'm, I'm not sure I believe that, but um, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I have to say, reading the book for everybody out there, uh, David just doesn't concentrate on major metropolitan areas. You talk about all kinds of places all over the country, little towns. Well, that's the point. If yeah. you're only available in a major metropolitan area, you're not American cuisine. Right. I'm right. looking, I mean, sushi is available everywhere. I, I mentioned you talk about non-metropolitan areas. There, there's a steakhouse in Butte, Montana, yeah, that, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Uh, they they added a sushi night once a week to boost business, and it's been a huge success. Now they have a sushi roll with a pork chop in it, but <laughs> be that as it may, it's sushi. I, and you mentioned sushi. Sushi came to the US in the early 60s, well, late 50s, perhaps, when a rebuilding Japan began sending uh business executives to LA and and a certain number of restaurants, sushi bars catering to, to the Japanese clientele started to pop up, but they were discovered in the way that things are hippified or made cool. They were discovered by the Hollywood glitterati who suddenly latched onto sushi as a cool thing to eat. Then 
sushi was Americanized in that all sorts of sushi rolls were invented that were completely American, filled with all sorts of things and, and sauces uh, that, that were not something you'd find in Japan. But when you combine the hippification of sushi with, with these, um, these kind of uh, uh, culture leaders jumping on the sushi bandwagon, with the availability to get sushi that didn't have raw fish in it. And by the way, sushi doesn't have to have any fish in it. Uh, sushi refers to the vinegared rice, not, not the fish, but be that as it may. Once all sorts of, you know, like the Philly roll with uh, smoked salmon and cream cheese, and cream cheese is an item that's never been part of the Japanese diet. Yeah. When you could get a Philly roll, or uh, I profile in the book a sushi joint in a gas station in Oklahoma yeah. where most of their rolls, I mean, Oklahoma is the land of chicken fried steak. Most of their sushi rolls are dropped whole into a deep fryer. Um, and, and folks love them. They're doing great. And, and you, I think you said in the book that kids nowadays, instead of going yeah. out for lunch and grabbing a burger, Sushi is, is what they're grabbing. Well, the, the woman who used that example for me is a high-ranking executive at the largest producer of prepackaged sushi in America. And she referenced her own kids. She said, look, when I was in high school, me and my girlfriends would go get a burger. Today, for my kids, it's sushi. And it is. Look around. It's everywhere. It's, you know, when it's at the 7-Eleven and the CVS yeah. and at the ballpark and an expected item in the cafeteria at college, that's American cuisine. That's American, no, Americana. What, what are, let's talk about pizza for a minute. What are the most popular styles of pizza? Well, everybody's got a different list, but cheese, pepperoni, sausage, and um, margarita, which some people will call uh, Neapolitan, although to be truly Neapolitan, um, it's going to be soupier than most Americans think pizza should be. So what dishes uh, are becoming more popular and which dishes are becoming less popular? Um, there's a, a significant increase right now in our experimentation with the regional foods of Mexico. The Mexican-American cuisine that, that we have been comfortable with over the years whether it evolved into Tex-Mex or California Mex or even New Mexico Mex, those all came from the regional cuisine of the Norteños, the, the residents of Northern Mexico who suddenly one day in 1848 found themselves Americans after we took half of Mexico's territory in the Mexican-American War. It was their dishes that became um, modified or evolved into what we're used to over the past, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 years. Um, there's been a significant increase in Mexican immigration from other parts of the country. And uh, we're seeing dishes that, that were not part of the, the tent poles. Most significantly these days, I would point to a dish called birria, which is a stew, a spicy stew in Jalisco and other central Mexican areas, it was traditionally made of goat, though beef became an option. And uh, the concept of beef birria 
um, kind of found a home in Tijuana once it crossed the border into Southern California. And it's become the hot new Mexican food in America. It's crossed to the East Coast now and generally served as tacos, which was really a Tijuana thing. A tortilla is thrown on a grill. Well, first it's doused in uh, the cooking liquid. Then it's thrown on the grill. Then the meat that's been stewing in that cooking liquid for hours is thrown on top of it with more of the sauce. If you want cheese, it's called quesobidia. You throw cheese on there. Then you flip the taco. You, you close it. You make a sandwich out of it. You flip it on the grill. You serve it with a cup of the juice, the, the cooking liquid that now is called consomme once you get it as a consumer. And you dip the taco into the consomme and you go to heaven. It is uh, one of the greatest things ever on the face of the earth since the beginning of time and well worth driving 90 minutes to Philadelphia for me to get at a truck on the street. It's just incredible. You're making me hungry. I should be. <laughs> what food, what food uh, do you think is becoming less popular? Some of the old Chinese dishes. I mean, it's certainly hard to find chop suey or chow mein these days. That's true. Even though chop suey is the Chinese dish that first um, uh, launched the, uh, the Chinese food craze in America, uh, Chinese food began <clears throat> in America uh, with the gold rush in California when uh, a bunch of miners came over from China and with them came a bunch of merchants who uh, fed them and sold them the goods they needed to, to pan for gold. Uh, as non-Chinese began trying these restaurants, the restaurant owners pretty quickly figured out what Americans would eat and more importantly, what they would not and they came up with a dish called chop suey. Now, there's long been a historical debate. Is chop suey really a Chinese dish or, or was it invented here out of whole cloth? I tend toward the argument that says there was a dish in China that was called something similar to chop suey. In Chinese, it meant bits and pieces. That was um, body parts, uh, you know, offal, entrails mixed in with vegetables, the offal was replaced for Americans with beef, chicken, or pork, all in a thick brown sauce reminiscent of American stew to make it palatable. And when chop suey took off, uh, that opened the door to uh, a wider range of Chinese American foods. I'm sure everybody asks you this question. So, David, what is your favorite food? And you might have answered it already. I don't know. Well, I have I have two death row meals, depending on how I'm feeling. One is bagel, ox and cream cheese. The other is Central Texas brisket from Louis Miller's in Taylor, Texas. Either one of those would be perfectly fine as my last meal on Earth. Although, to be honest with you, um, my bagel, ox and cream cheese would probably be Bialy ox and cream cheese. Okay. Okay. What was the one thing from your research uh, that stood out the most that surprised you? Yeah, uh, the fact that lox, bagel, and cream cheese did not come from Europe. Uh, poor, Jew poor Jewish immigrants in Europe did not eat smoked salmon. 
Um, there may have been some around, but it was expensive. It was not something eaten on a, a, a daily basis. Cream cheese did not exist. And, and the whole lox bagel and cream cheese thing was born in the United States when the transcontinental railroad was completed, which allowed the shipping of salmon from the Pacific Northwest to the East coast in the mid 1800s. But there was no refrigeration. There weren't refrigerated rail cars. So the salmon had to be packed in salt to preserve it. Well, you pack salmon and salt, you get what we now know as locks. And, and that's how smoked salmon. Well, that's not smoked salmon. It's locks. Uh, there's now a great confusion. Real locks is, is salmon brined and salt. What most people call locks is actually salmon that's been smoked. You can get them both at any appetizing store. But, but that, that's where the availability of locks came from. And uh, the combination of, of locks and cream cheese, um, A, it makes perfect sense, because especially when you're dealing with the original locks that was salty as hell, uh, even on a chemical basis, cream cheese um, kind of tamps down the salt. Jews, uh, immigrants in New York at the time, would eat butter on a bagel. So we know bagels existed. Cream cheese was invented by accident by an upstate New York farmer who was trying to replicate French Neufchatel. But when it was invented, one company, Breakstone, was smart enough to write ads to run in the Yiddish newspaper, the, the Forvitz, the forward, uh, that had copies specifically aimed at Jews, which suggesting that cream cheese was good with this Jewish dish or that Jewish dish. Other companies which ran ads in the Forbes just translated their ads that had been aimed at a broader population. So Breakstone became the cream cheese of choice among Jewish immigrants in New York. There is no record that anyone has ever found describing the day that someone said, hey, let's put locks on this, but it happened, thank God. So overall, what did, what did you learn about food? Well, I, I developed a respect for the fact that, that food and the people around it are a, uh, a living, growing, evolving thing, that our food is important to us, it's what we share with other people. It's an excuse to sit down and talk, but that it is always changing and that we need to be open to that change and, and to embrace modifications and evolutions. I mean, to the guy at the table who says that's not authentic Chinese food, one of the most popular dishes in China today is um, scrambled eggs and tomato. So you tell me what's authentic. <laughs> David, tell us, how can we find and order the book, your book, Food Americana? You can order the book online at, at any one that, that sells books, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, although I would send you first and foremost to Amazon because their statistics about sales are the most helpful to an author. Um, but if you don't want to buy it on Amazon, just, just go to any place you buy books and it's there. Um, you can contact me via the food Americana, Facebook or Instagram accounts. I answer messages. I like to talk to people. I like to answer questions. Um, so please feel free to get in touch. Okay. So they can get in touch with you. Uh, 
if they desire Instagram and Facebook. Do you have any plans uh, in the works for the future? Any new books coming out or yeah, I, anything I have going on? I have a couple of things going on. I'm working on a book um, with the working title of Eating While Standing, which is about the foods you don't sit down and get served. Everything from baseball stadiums to hot dog carts to food trucks to breakfast sandwiches. Um, that's in the works. And um, because you always want to do more than one thing at the same time. I recently started a syndicated radio show that has nothing to do with food. It's called Martini Music with David Page. It's the music of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So if your radio station isn't carrying it, call up and beat them up. Yeah. Yeah. And where can you get it on the internet? No, this is a syndicated radio show. You have to beat your local station up to buy it. Okay. Okay. I want to thank you, David, for being on the podcast and sharing all your incredible work. And I, I wish you nothing but success going forward. Uh, for those uh, who have comments and suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page and group. Our group is growing very nicely. Uh, it's in the thousands now. It's a wrap with rap. We're on Instagram. It's a wrap with rap podcast. And all the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap, the podcast uncut. And of course you can get them all on our website. It's a wrap with rap.com. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. And for now it's a wrap.